0: microphone check one two cc hello and welcome cc hello and welcome X one two three four five six she sells seashells by the seashore she sells seashells by the seashore there we go rolling
1: use a single light on the entire shoot we didn't use any lights we had a camera and a tripod that's it that's
2: it camera (laughs) and a tripod and that came out of a need to like because we knew it was going to be just the two of us we didn't even have anyone um assisting us we were shooting it in 4k which um made it a little bit more difficult and basically we just didn't want the technology to Mm. you know get in the way of a story
0: Hello and welcome to The Documentary Life, a show that sets out to inspire and inform you on how to best live and lead your own documentary life. I am your host, Chris G. Parkhurst, and this is episode number 38 and it is brought to you by barong films proud creators of documentary film the documentary life podcast and the documentary academy our industry-changing a to z documentary filmmaking program that will transform you into the documentary filmmaker that you've always wanted to be find out more at the documentarylife.com academy This past week steph and i attended podcast movement 2017 over in anaheim california for anyone unfamiliar with podcast movement or hashtag pm17 as it's it quickly became referred to by the young and hip of podcast movement well it's an annual industry conference that's focused on the business of podcasting and it consisted of two and a half days of workshops breakout sessions and keynote speeches led by some of the most recognizable voices of both the podcast and radio worlds. This year was actually the fourth year in its existence, and and to my understanding, it was the biggest one yet. To give you an idea, some of the bigger names that were present this year at Podcast Movement uh, were Dan Carlin of Common Sense and Dan Carlin's Hardcore History Podcasts, um, Aaron Mankey of Lower Fame, as well as uh, the creatives behind the wildly successful Undisclosed podcast. Now, I'd never, I'd never attended podcast movement before, but I'd heard nothing but good things. And, and so when tickets first, they first went on sale at the end of last year, the day after Thanksgiving, actually here in America, to be exact, I immediately purchased them because I heard, I'd heard such great things. And I really wanted to kind of broaden my, my knowledge and, and meet other people um, involved in podcasting. Since purchasing them back in, in late November of last year, I'd, I'd been pretty eager to see what all the, all the fuss was about. And now I know because it was pretty awesome even if I hadn't learned a ton by the many industry people that were present, or been inspired by other successful podcasters out there telling their stories and, and making a difference in people's lives, or you know had gotten the chance to hear people like the you know the, the people that I mentioned earlier, if I hadn't had the chance to, to, to hear the great talks that they gave, even if not for these things, I think that I can safely say, and and I think I can speak for Steph on this as well. That just being around other like-minded people, doing similar things such as, such as myself, being around podcasters, which, which for now, it, it's, it's not exactly a daily occurrence. Hell, it's not even a monthly occurrence for me. Being around my people, yes, I, I did just apparently refer to, <laughs> refer to other podcasters as my people. Well, it was really great, and it was inspiring, and it was informative. And I now I, I now no longer feel on my own doing this thing that I love. I, I no longer I no longer feel like I, like I don't have support or that that people don't understand what in the hell this whole podcasting thing is about or, or or what podcasting is to begin with. You have to remember that that while all of you guys you you guys obviously are, are you're well acquainted with podcasting, it's still it's still a relatively new thing for for a lot of other people. You know, so half the time when I when I'm explaining to someone what the documentary life is, I also have to explain what podcasting is to them. You know, obviously this is rapidly changing with the success of shows like, you know, the, the, the earlier mentioned Undisclosed or, or, or Serial, that was a big one, or again, Dan Carlin's Hardcore History. But for now, podcasting, it somehow still feels pretty, pretty, well, very much in its, in its infancy. Now if anything that I've just said rings true to any of you, well it rang true to me too and there's a good reason. A number of times this week I found myself thinking and pondering about the parallels between podcasters and documentary filmmakers. Like the feelings that I that I just described to you about being around other like-minded individuals and basking in the love and and and, and support and and feeling Not alone when we're in this, you know, eternal struggle for money for our films or or we're working three part-time jobs just to be able to to keep the lights on. And and I do mean both house lights as well as set lights. Or constantly having to explain to people why we do what we do day in and day out for the love and the passion that we have for documentary films. So I thought a lot about this show. I, I revisited why I even started doing the documentary life at this point about 15 months ago. And I realized that while, while things certainly have evolved over this time period, and, and most of you already know this, right? The form, the, the format change that, that occurred a couple of months ago, uh, my ability to string more than a few sentences together, the size of our listenership, one thing that is exactly the same as it was the day that I started this show is the why I do this show, which is I do this show today like, like I did over a year ago because I believe that there is a need for the kind of inspiration, information, and, and networking that this show strives to bring you week in and week out. I know in my heart of hearts that there is a community of like-minded documentary filmmakers out there, you know, out there in the world who are finding this show a pretty useful tool to making their own documentary films, to making those films come to fruition and for making their documentary lives a very real thing. I have not doubted this since day one, you know, since the day we began this journey. And I feel even stronger about it now. So as we move forth with today's program, I want us all to be thinking of the thousands of other people out there that are listening to this show probably right now, probably at the same time that you're listening to it. The many other documentary filmmakers out there, just like you and me, who, 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 who have the same struggles as you and I, who, who also benefit by, by tuning in religiously each and every week in hopes of hearing you know some little tidbit or two of valuable content that speaks to them and for feeling not alone as they make their sometimes scary way in this world that we all call our documentary lives. I am honored to be continuing on this journey with you. My name is Chris G. Parkhurst, and this is The Documentary Life. When we come back from the break, I'm going to give you five reasons for studying documentary filmmaking. And in our Doc Industry guest segment, we'll have a candid conversation with two Australian filmmakers, who one day, they made the very calculated and conscious decision to make documentary films for a living. Their current film, Barbecue, it takes a look at the age-old tradition of cooking meat by fire, as seen through the lens of citizens the world over. I need a favor. I, I need a favor from you. And I'm going to ask you something that I don't think I've asked of you for, for well, well over a year at this point. I need you to go to iTunes right now and give this show a five-star rating and maybe even write a few words for a quick review. When I first started doing the podcast, I, I, I was asking you this on a regular basis, but, but I haven't for a while. So I'm asking you now because I'd like to see this podcast get out to more people. That can happen if the documentary life comes up in more iTunes searches. Now, in in order for this to occur, iTunes needs to see more activity in its ratings and reviews section. The more ratings and reviews a show gets, the more it will come up in searches. So when people are searching for documentary film podcasts, for instance, we're far more likely to come up in their searches if iTunes is seeing more of this activity, the ratings and reviews that that I'm referring to. This show is a passion of mine, right? So, so please help me keep growing this documentary community of ours. So if the documentary life has benefited you in any way, please just take a moment right now, head to iTunes, find the documentary life podcast and, and, and look for the ratings and reviews tab. And then from there, just leave a five-star rating and review. I can promise you that every single one of these ratings and reviews, it gives it a little bump in the iTunes popularity rating, which thereby it increases the visibility of this show. Now, if you have any trouble finding the ratings and reviews area, I've added a direct link to it in the show notes for this episode. In advance, thank you for helping me to continue spreading the documentary life love. Seriously, thank you for your rating and review. So today, I'd like to give you five reasons for studying documentary filmmaking. It's important that you know that this is not my way of saying you should go to film school. That's not what this is about at all. I didn't go to film school. Most doc filmmakers that I know didn't go to film school. Not that there's anything wrong with that. It certainly has its merits, and we've talked about it on this show before. In fact, we had recent guests, uh, Brian Kimmel or, or John Manning, both successful filmmakers, doc filmmakers and commercial filmmakers, who went to film school. But a formal education isn't really what I'm specifically talking about here. There are many, many ways in which one can study documentary filmmaking. It could be watching more documentary films. It can be going to one-off seminars held by, by your local film group, or maybe um, a bigger event, which is held by a documentary film organization you know, in your community. Uh, listening to this podcast, right? That's, that's something. Or any of the other filmmaking podcasts that are out there. It provides a form of education, as does reading any of the zillions of books that are out there. So I'm going to list out for you what I think what I think are five damn good reasons why we should all be constantly and pretty consistently studying documentary filmmaking. The first reason I would say, and we'll just call this number one, and this is in, in no particular order. Number one, so that someone else will want to see your film and maybe more importantly, pay to see it. What's that? You don't care if someone actually sees your film. You don't need to make any money on it. Well, then you've probably turned into the wrong show, friend. (laughs) Look, I'm not trying to be harsh. I'm just trying to be realistic here. If you're telling me that you don't give a rat's behind, you know, whether or not you make a cent or shilling or whatever from your film, well, then I'll bet that you're between the ages of 18 to 22. You're attending school, but not as a film student, probably in fine arts or English lit, and and you have longer hair and you listen to the Smiths. Do not take offense by my generalization here. I just basically described myself when I was 20 years old, and I quote-unquote just wanted to be an artist. Well, you should see those films that I did during that time. Well, actually, then it would have been videos for sure. Actually, you shouldn't, and you never will if I have anything to say about it, because they're pretty unwatchable. And oh, by the way, I spent the next decade as a starving artist trying to um, stay true to my art. My point in all of this is, If you want to make documentary films, most likely you're not actively trying to not make money. You're not actively only trying to eat ramen as your diet and living in a shoebox for an apartment. The struggle isn't really that great, uh, though it certainly can inspire some of your work, but that's something else. No, I'm guessing that most of the people that are tuning into this show have moved beyond the insecure, entirely unfounded, and in my opinion, entirely unhelpful starving artist routine and want to make films that will be seen by others. And in order to do that, you need to have some money for your film. And you need to have some money so as not to be eating ramen all of the time. It's not pretty people and it's not healthy. For the record, Morrissey would probably laugh in your face if you told him you didn't want to make money because money would, I don't know, negatively impact your otherwise fine art. Look, anyone can make a film that's only going to be seen by you and your Susie and the Banshees loving girlfriend. (laughs) Anyone can make a film and put it up on video or YouTube. But not everyone can make a film that gets into a festival or gets picked up for distribution and perhaps, you know, hopefully seen by loads of people that takes some talent, and it takes some knowledge. So surrounding yourself with people who make films for a living, attending film festivals, consulting with someone about making your film, i.e. getting your butt educated, that's only going to give you a greater chance at making a film that will actually be seen by somebody. And I don't know about you guys, but I want my films to be seen. It took me about 10 years, maybe longer, to learn that lesson or to really fully appreciate that. And if my help, my words can help you skip those 10 years, it will have been well worth it. Number two, it's well worth the investment in yourself and your film. Wouldn't it be worth it to take a few weekend seminars in order to better yourself as a documentary filmmaker? Think about it. Yoga instructors, tax accountants real estate agents, body workers, they all consistently take courses or retreats or seminars in order to up their game. It just makes sense that as a filmmaker, you'd do the same. You already heard me mention earlier uh, uh, that you know that I attended a big podcast conference last week, right? Why? Because I want to increase the level of quality of my own podcast. As a documentary filmmaker, I'm constantly scouring film message boards, I'm sharing interesting articles with other colleagues and having them share them with me. I'm reading all kinds of, uh, of filmmaking books. I listen to other filmmaking podcasts, all you know, really in an effort to up my own documentary filmmaking game. As we all already know, filmmaking isn't exactly an inexpensive endeavor. Well, certainly better than in years past, but it, it, you know, it's pretty costly. And mistakes can be costly. And trust me, take it from someone who knows... It's easy to make film mistakes without even actually knowing you're doing it. And by the time you get to post-production, there may be no amount of editing that's 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 really going to be able to make much from the mess that you've already created. So, so broadening your knowledge of the filmmaking craft, it can, it can help save you some needless wastes of time and money. Number three. To not feel alone. And I mentioned this earlier, this idea of not feeling alone, right? Uh, I I felt it by attending podcasts. I gained greatly just by being around other people that were doing what I was doing. And documentary filmmaking, it's certainly no different. One of the initial reasons that I had for doing the documentary life was because I could see that there was a need to connect other documentary filmmakers with one another that unlike commercial filmmaking or commercial filmmakers, the doc community seemed to be a bit less connected doc filmmakers. They, you know, we tend to think that, that we can go it alone, that, that, that we can just take our camera and mic and, and and make our films. It's, it's actually kind of endemic in the culture of documentary filmmaking, this idea of, of doc filmmakers thinking they can go it alone, which of course you can in a way. But man, not only might it take you 15 years to get your film done, but you might up, end up breaking the bank or, or your marriage in the process. Don't do that. Don't do that. It, it's not necessary or it's, it's highly unnecessary in my opinion. We doc filmmakers, we need to stay connected. We need to feel a part of a greater community. I'm telling you, just knowing that there are others like us out there fighting the good fights and, and, and facing the struggles that we doc filmmakers always do, it can be a very, very helpful thing knowing that other people are also experiencing that. Hell, that's why you're doing this right this second, listening to me prattle on about documentary filmmaking on this here podcast. And the thing is, in the process of getting out there and meeting other doc filmmakers or attending you know, documentary workshops or, 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 or paying to consult with someone, again, we're feeling less alone. And feeling less alone, it gives us a better chance to blossom creatively. Knowing that you don't have to do everything on your own, it can be a huge and oftentimes a pretty surprising relief to those of us who have been doing our doc projects you know, on our own for such a long time. Number four is a musician needs to study music, and what do I mean by that? Recently, and don't laugh at this, I've been I've been considering taking up the piano. It's an instrument that I that I'd kind of wish that I'd learn later on in life. Here at this point, so much of the root of any piece comes from a piano, right? I don't really know if I'll, I'll actually really attempt to learn to play the piano, but if I do. Do you imagine that the first thing I do is is I don't know buy a really nice Steinway and and just start con- constructing some classical compositions you know to be used as as maybe scoring for my next great film? Uh, no, probably not. <laughs> the first thing that I'm most likely going to do is 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 run a Google search right for instructors say within a 15 mile radius of myself you know who specialize in training beginning or beginner piano players and then then I'll just take it from there. How does that relate to documentary filmmaking? Well, these days you can probably buy a decent camera for a relatively inexpensive price. Get a light or two, a shotgun mic, and and you can just start filming, right? You can do that, and I would never tell you not to. I want you out there in the world practicing and learning your passion as much as you can. But I might recommend making your life a little easier by at least watching a few, I don't know, how-to YouTube videos, if nothing else that'll at least help you avoid i don't know getting the wrong speed of of SD card or pointing your shotgun mic in the wrong direction or say ruining your camera by by naively going from a hot and humid environment into to a much cooler room without allowing your camera the proper time to acclimatize i've done that and and it did ruin my camera not to mention um telling a decent story. I've met many a filmmaker who simply think that by owning the latest and greatest uh, drones and, and red cameras that that inherently they were made to make great films. And then I watch their work and I wonder how on earth they thought shooting, you know, these really cool slow motion shots of people in, in bathing suits doing backflips from, you know, off of cliffs, cliffs into beautiful lagoons into Thailand, how they thought they were, they were making a compelling story by these, by these images, or why going from head to talking head to talking head doesn't often make for a very moving documentary film. Just as learning from a professional pianist how to play the piano can help you someday play a song up on a stage, learning from a professional filmmaker how to make a proper film can help you get your film up on the screen. Last but not least, number five, other people have great ideas too. I know, I know, you, you've got killer ideas that no one else has ever thought of and, and you've got this unique style of filmmaking that's entirely your own, it's unlike any other. That's great and I believe you. But I also know that the reality is that 99.9% of what we are and and what we create, it comes from others who have come before us. We don't create our films in a vacuum. We are completely subject to influences, no matter how much you wanna believe otherwise. It reminds me of an article I once read. Uh, it was an interview with the lead singer of R.E.M., Michael Stipe. The interviewer asked him how he was influenced by the Beatles. And, and Stipe basically said he was completely uninfluenced by anything Beatlesque, which to me is like saying that genetics have no bearing on our mental or physical health. I mean, come on. It's the Beatles. Anyhow, look, I'm not suggesting that you should copy or steal someone else's film idea or style though well, i suppose that tarantino got away with it but 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 that's another story you do need to be aware of your influences and aware of how you use them it's probably not a great idea to make a you know some slightly obscure doc about changing weather patterns in madagascar and and how it's affecting the meerkat population and narrate it with a slow and deliberate german accent that's not going to cut it obviously at best you'll be, you'll be called out for your <clears throat> certainly shall we say, hurt Soggy and tendencies. At worst, you'd be laughed at for trying to emulate a god of cinema. Anyhow, I I digress as, as I do from time to time. My point is that we're all in some way, you know, made up of like a thousand different influences. So why not embrace them fully? Why not take what you like and leave behind what you don't like and fashion something that is you out of what's left? which, by the way, is most likely going to be one big stir fry, if you will, of of filmmakers, painters, uh, musicians, and teachers, bad TV shows, good hair days, whatever. Through studying films and their makers, we can not only better understand how cool things get made, but we can then put our own personal spins on them, thereby creating something we can all be proud of putting out into the world. So there you have it five pretty good reasons, or as I mentioned earlier, hopefully five damn good reasons that I believe that we all should be, in some form or another, constantly studying documentary filmmaking. It's now time for the DocLifer Community Question of the Week. The DocLifer Community Question of the Week is brought to you by DesktopDocumentaries.com, proud creators of the documentary Scriptwriting Masterclass, an exciting new course by Academy Award nominee Daniel Raim that basically demystifies the scriptwriting process for your whole documentary film. So the email comes from a Robert in in, uh, Atlanta, Georgia, and it reads, Hi, Chris. First off, I have been a loyal listener to your show for the past year. I have listened to them all and eagerly await each episode that comes out. And I can say that I am also very happy with your new weekly format. More episodes for me to enjoy. I write you also because I am wondering if you might know any doc filmmakers planning post-Harvey work in Houston. I've been encouraged to seek out a grant for emergency response ethnography on it, following on from my thesis topic. And the idea came up to include a documentary component, which I've been considering adding to my anthropology work anyway. Thank you, Robert. Well, thank you very much for the email, Robert. Anyone in the States probably already knows what Robert's referring to here, but those around the world who don't know, uh, the southern part of Texas this past week, including the city of Houston, it's recently been enveloped in one of the worst storms called Hurricane Harvey and now flooding in the history of of Texas. Tens of thousands of people have been displaced from their homes. In fact, uh, uh, just uh, before I started recording this, I was reading an article about how how all 12,000 members of the National. Guard in Texas have been deployed in the area so the images that I've seen they harken back to Hurricane Katrina in, in New Orleans um, pretty horrifying stuff in, in, in any case Robert Robert's basically asking if anyone will be planning on doing some some documentary film work in Houston um, uh, uh, soon after the, this the events maybe die down I can only assume that the answer is yes but but I don't I don't know anyone personally myself at the moment who is so I'm asking you, Doc Lifers, are any of you planning on doing any any film work there? Um, are there any Doc Lifers lifers in Texas, uh, perhaps, or, or or certainly outside of Texas as well? Um, if so, please email me and I, and I can put you in touch with Robert if this is something that you're interested in. I don't know about any budget or anything like that, but but maybe from the sounds of Robert's email, um, maybe he's going to include some kind of line item within his grant application. Honestly, I, I don't really know about that. Um, but again, like I said, I can put you in touch with Robert. The best way would be for you to email me at chris at barongfilms.com. That's chris at b a r a n g Films.com. So please feel free to write me about this if you're looking to do some filming in Texas after after the flooding has subsided. It seems like a nice opportunity. So I, I thought I'd put this one out there for you guys. If you yourself have a comment, question, or suggestion for the show, again you can email me at chris@barongfilms.com, at and you too could be the next uh, Doc Life or Community Question of the Week. When we come back from a quick break, we will be talking with Matthew Saleh and Rose Tucker, who are two documentary filmmakers from the land down under, who've just released a wonderful film that's entitled Barbecue. Believe me, this is going to be one fiery and delicious conversation. (laughs) So you've got a great idea for a documentary film. Awesome. I'd love to hear about it, but I don't have a ton of time. Can you tell me about it in 30 seconds or less? Oh, you don't quite have your pitch down yet. Okay, that's fine. What's your website where I can find more information? Maybe a press kit I can take a look at. You don't have one. Well, have you thought about how you might raise some funds to help with the costs of making films? They can be expensive, right? You haven't. Okay, maybe just tell me about your audience. Who's going to want to see your film? Who will you be marketing it to? You don't know this either. Okay, then I'm going to assume you haven't thought about how you'll be getting your film out into the world then, right? I think I see what's going on here. I was once in your shoes. A great idea for a doc. Camera in one hand, a boom mic in the other. But other than that, not much other than a whole lot of excitement and gumption. And that's great. You'll need all of that. But you'll also need a heck of a lot more if you're looking to make the kind of documentary film that you can be proud of. The kind that people will want to see and will impact them. The kind that won't break the bank while you're making it. And dare I say, you might even make some money from. You need support, and we've got you covered. We built the Documentary Academy with you in mind. We've got all the resources you need to make a successful documentary film you can be proud of. Come and enroll at the slash academy, and let's turn that doc idea into a reality. I'm excited to have you guys on the show today, Matthew Saleh and Rose Tucker. Welcome to the Documentary Life. Let's get this thing started, shall we? Sounds good. A big focus of what we'll talk about, obviously, is going to be about your film, Barbecue, yeah. which has recently been released, the, the the feature-length documentary, Barbecue. I'm excited to talk about it. Before we do get into that, it would be helpful for myself and for for my listeners to understand a little bit about where Matthew Selle and Rose Tucker, where you guys come from and what you're all about and what brought you to to documentary filmmaking, really.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So we're originally from Adelaide, Australia, um, where we've been running our production company for just over 11 years now. And, and, you know, we, we started the way a lot of people do just by making our own short films, that kind of thing. And then started to realize, you know, Oh, we need to make a business out of this and started doing a lot of commercial work, um, corporate videos and, and things like that. And then we moved into doing TV commercials and, 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 and that kind of thing. And that was what our business was. It was primarily a commercial production company. Right. Um, and then about, five years ago we made a short documentary made a sh- our first short documentary which we shot in Argentina and that's where we just sort of we, we hit our stride we discovered like this is our passion this is what we're really good at <laughs> and for the next few years we made a, a series of short documentaries and those did quite well in film festivals and the like so they did the festival rounds and um we got to sort of hone our skills really find our style and then uh we um thought Let's let's have a crack at making our first feature. So in Australia, we're, we're very lucky in that there's funding available from the government. Right. Um, so right. we, we went for it, applied for it. Um, the funding body had been keeping an eye on us, uh, looking at our short films and things like that. So they were quite excited for us to submit for this particular grant. Um, and we did it and we got shortlisted and then we got it and we're like, oh, boy, now we have to <laughs> we travel go. the world, travel <laughs> the world. In- Film in 12 countries, oh boy, what have we gotten ourselves into? <laughs> right,
0: right, right. Well, and, and you and I, we run some pretty similar paths and that the way that we do kind of function our documentary lives is that we're doing the commercial and the corporate work to sort of support our passion work. And not unlike uh, you, Matthew and Rose, my wife, Steph and I, we are now really sort of, not that we're by any means turning away from sort of the commercial and corporate work but we really are focusing more on the documentary work in a way that that's really how we want to try to create our livings now solely at some point and so that's very much sort of the goal at hand and it seems a bit a, a bit like that's how you guys are functioning now.
2: Uh yeah, absolutely, you know, like um I think for us the balance was I think you really have to find a way to Um, actually enjoy the commercial work you know it's very easy for filmmakers to say oh uh, I don't want to do commercial work I'm actually (laughs) I'm actually a brilliant filmmaker that's not I'm an artist (laughs) but but, you know I I enjoy making I enjoy making stuff more than I enjoy being being a filmmaker if that makes sense I like I enjoy like Rosie and I work with like most People were just a crew of two when we're out in the field, so we need, you know, to constantly hone our skills. You yeah. know, it was it was funny. Just before we um, set off on making this film, we um, got hired to reshoot all the stock footage for um, uh, our local tourism board. Oh, um, wow. so, you know, <laughs> uh, people clinking wine glasses and having a great old time. Yeah. And normally you'd hire a crew. Like, it was pretty, you know, um, you know, they wanted very stylish footage, and normally you'd hire 10 or 12 people to... Uh, to have a new crew and a bunch of professional actors and makeup bars and all the rest, and we just yeah. got a bunch of our friends and shot it with just the two of us. Fantastic! So we could absolutely simulate what it would be like being out in the field, and so you know we would we would literally be like you know lugging our equipment in backpacks um, through the wineries as practice yeah. for when we sort of you know. <laughs> Went into the middle of the Middle East, so you know, for me, commercial work is a great way to, you know, get your flight hours up, as it were, and just yeah. just constantly shoot, constantly edit, and like, mm-hmm. you know, it's funny because once you actually, you know, with this being our first feature, you actually end up ironically shooting a lot less because you have to spend about a year marketing the film and you have to do a lot more pre-production, and all that. So I've always, yeah, I've always found that that commercial work is a way to sort of like. Pra- and, and make it so that when you actually do get a chance to shoot a great story, like it's easy. You're not worrying about like um, how to quickly change a lens or like.
1: Right. Or even, I mean, post production as well. Our our post production pipeline was so smooth because of the years of you know high high turnaround, quick turnaround commercial work. So yeah, when it right. Film, it was it was a uh, you know we had all those systems in place and it was it was simple.
0: It's funny how how they they do go hand in hand and and I remember early on in my career thinking man you know, I uh, I don't know if I really want to do to do the commercial thing and it didn't take long for me and, and I was also working with the with uh, with you know I had a mentor and I was working with the right people who who often really kind of I through observing and working with them I realized you know what there's ways to. To not only can I be honing a ton of these skills that I'm going to be using in my films later on, but I'm sort of observing the ways in which you you fashion and you tell a story and right, and it's all all about storytelling. And so, they're not commercial and documentary can often come together, especially nowadays. Commercial work is much, documentary elements in commercial work is much is is much more accepted and cool and hip thing now.
1: Yeah, and that was that was how we sold ourselves. To be honest, that was yep. our, our our main style of commercial work was was documentary style. So working with real people rather than actors and, exactly. and that, that kind of thing. So yeah, a lot of crossover.
0: Something that jumped out when when I was looking a bit uh, at your guys's background was was this idea that you the fact that you were creating a number of doc shorts before you got to, to barbecue the feature length. And I'm, I'm fascinated with that. was that? Was that a very conscient was that a very conscious decision that look, I, we want to make a bunch of doc shorts. We want to practice our skills, hone our skills so that we can then go and, and do this with our feature. Was that very intentional or did you want to make documentary short films at that point?
2: Yeah, no, I think it was definitely the latter. Um, I think you have to be really careful about, um, I'm very wary about people that do like calling card films because it, 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 it <laughs> can work. You know, that's when you, you know, I'm, I'm going to make this short as like a, something to show the investors for the feature sort of thing. And that that's that's great and that's very tactical, but but as long as the short film, as long as you have a passion for making hmm. the short film itself. So when we when we made um, uh, our first short, Pablo's Villa, and I should mention a little project we had before we did our first short documentary, we had this little online web project called Portrait Mode where basically we would interview, oh, I think in the end we interviewed $100. about 100 people and we would interview them for hours and then... Just put up one small unedited, forty-second piece of it, and oh, then we
1: wow. a, It's like Humans of New York, but video. That's <laughs> before, amazing. Before, before, before Humans of New but, York was a thing. <laughs> um,
2: but um, and and that that was where we actually developed a love of just capturing people's stories, you know, and just realizing through talking to hundred hundred or so people that yeah that. You know, like, oh man, the stories that you guys tell are way better than anything I could write. <laughs> then so we can construct so we right? That, <laughs> yeah, we went from that, and then we would just track. You know, the first sh- documentary short we made, Pablo's Villa, which is about a um, a, a town um, in uh, near uh, in Argentina that went yes. underwater for like twenty five years, and yes. everyone abandoned it except this this old guy, Pablo. That was just made by fluke you know we were literally just um on ho- on holiday sort oh, of traveling man. through the area and um and we had like a the camera in the in the backpack and we just decided to make this um short doc and you know we'd sort of gotten so heavy into the commercial work that out uh, we had sort of put the um the film dreams on hiatus yes. for a bit and, and so when when it came to making this um short we were just gonna pop it up on Vimeo and be done with it yeah, and then yeah, yeah. showed it to a bunch of friends they said oh I should just just pop it in a couple of film festivals yeah, and it we're did like
0: quite well right
2: yeah, yeah and we and did, well, did i mean yeah. we got we got very lucky we 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 you know and and film festivals it's all about finding people that can really help champion your your work and you know at we yes. were we world well premiered at the sydney film festival which is you know a big australian festival fantastic and, um, yeah. Yeah, yeah and the programmer there jenny neighbor she's she found that film out of the slush pile and like um, has now been supporting us has supported all of our films all the way up and through yeah, she's the now played
1: now, now played 3 of our films so she's We well, have amazing. someone
0: championing you now that that's the beauty of the film festival thing right and and when you get yeah. connected with a director like that Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. We we now now did uh I see did, now did Pablo's Villa also play at the Melbourne International Film Festival?
1: Yeah, it, it did. did. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Yep.
0: And and that is not the same as uh Melbourne Documentary Film Festival, correct? No, no yeah, they're right. two okay. different
1: festivals. Yeah.
0: Okay. So the, docu- yeah. the
1: documentary film festival is quite new. It's only been around um, for the last two uh, years. Two
2: years, it? right? Right. Yeah, yeah that's and, right. And, um, Melbourne International Film Festival is one of those big old legacy, Classic, I think, right. from, like, yeah. running since the '50s, kind of. Yeah. The Australians have had very long-running film festivals in Sydney and Melbourne, mainly because it was so hard to get film prints over in uh. the <laughs> '60s and '70s. Oh my God. <laughs> The only way they could get them was for like one screening, and then they'd have to ship them back. So festivals were a big part of Australian film culture. <laughs>
0: Fantastic. We we had uh, a couple of months ago. We did a special on on film festivals. In fact, we made a two part a two two-part, parter. <laughs> And Lyndon Stone, who is the director of the of the Melbourne Documentary Film Festival, kind of led us through that quite uh, as well as three or four other filmmakers, and yeah. uh, had a fantastic time creating the show and and we learned a ton and and the show was pretty successful, and I you know through Lyndon I learned quite a bit about really about film in Australia documentary film in Australia, and yeah. uh, I I shot a job in in Melbourne a couple of years ago and that's my only experience with Australia the Far, but I'm looking forward to getting there and and perhaps attending or perhaps even being uh, uh, in in the Sydney Film Festival or or Melbourne International or Melbourne Doc. I think it's, it would be great.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And and experience. and
2: all, all through, obviously Melbourne Doc, but Mel, uh, Melbourne International and Sydney Film Festival. They yeah. also have there's a very strong history of those uh, are the biggies. Of- of documentary programming especially as well like very 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 astute programming out of those those places which is and yeah and so when we when we got um um, when you know these festivals started supporting us that was sort of a big turning point that i guess it was almost like we were being given permission to Mm. do do more work with thinking of the big screen as the sort and, and a big audience as the primary as the first stop on on the film and that's what then led to it was actually we were up at um that Pablo's Villa also got into slam dancing yes, uh, in the U- mm-hmm. in the US and it was after that that we were road we knew you know we come all the way over to America because we attended it and we yeah. were like we well, got to do something And we did a road trip afterwards and that's when we went through central texas and and filmed the short film central texas barbecue <laughs> mm. which as much as i said don't do a calling card film that film kind of it, ended well, it up it
1: became a calling card film, <laughs>
2: it was i absolutely that was
0: going to be my next question yeah, yeah tell us it about yeah, that yeah. yeah it
1: was not shot with that intention yeah. it was just shot as a standalone film but it was that film that that the this uh screen australia the funding body took a real shine to and they're like oh you know what do you got what i'll do next And we're like um that 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 times 12 countries thanks (laughs)
0: wow 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 and and did and did footage from central texas barbecue make it into barbecue or did you go back to texas and refilm
1: yeah we went back and refilmed so um yeah we 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 wanted we wanted to to we didn't want to reuse anything from the short and
2: the story had changed as well. You know, it had changed from being a standalone idea to something that had to feed into a more global story. So yeah, we just figured, ah, I'll reshoot it. <laughs> right. And, and
0: tell me how the success, the sh- making the short films, getting films like Pablo's Villa, central Texas barbecue into Sydney and Melbourne film festivals, and now becoming a part of their programming completely on their radar. How does that help then your funding for, the bigger film
1: yeah it was incredibly helpful actually we went to Jenny neighbor and then at Melbourne Film Festival Thomas Caldwell we went to those two programmers who'd been really supportive of our shorts and we actually got them to write letters of support when we went for the funding um, obviously, they couldn't guarantee they would scream the feature, but uh, right. but they they were saying like we're really interested in seeing what Matt and Rosie do next. We, you know, definitely consider watching this film. I think just having having those two on board right back at the at the going for funding stage was really important. Yeah, but right. I think all
2: I think also in. In, on top of just the, uh, I guess, the uh, hmm, tactical advantage of having people like this on site, it's like I said, it was it, there was as much like growth as a filmmaker that came out of, you know, two or three years of being um, on the festival circuit because it means you're constantly engaging with audiences. And also, you know, I, it's very easy for, for filmmakers to really not um, – not like film programmers when they're not programming your film yeah. but when you actually sort and we, of uh, we've uh, and we've been on that we've side been, hey hey oh yeah I oh yeah worry. i got i got i got my i got my i got my list don't worry yeah. oh yeah oh
0: yeah <laughs> we so can share lists <laughs> there's
2: a more rejections than we've
1: had acceptance but, but don't worry but what <laughs> yeah. it means
2: is, is if you actually start to listen to what like pr- programmers have their finger very strongly on the pulse of what audience is like and yes. i think sometimes when you don't get a film into a festival you know, I mean, and there's such a huge number of, um, of, of films being entered into festivals now that it really that's isn't, right. it, there's no fairness in any of the process. But, you know, if you can actually sit down and listen, and these guys are at the coalface and having to keep very demanding audiences constantly happy. If you actually can get into their brain and see, like, what they're thinking, and, like, you yes. know, like, what's your hook, what's your hook, why, and, and also they've seen everything. So, unfortunately, you know, when you think you've got your super original idea for a movie, <laughs> you, actually talk, you talk to these guys and they're like, oh, yeah, that's like these 14 other films I've seen before. And then, you know, so I sort of see the film. Programmers as being, like, um, expert-level um, film watchers yeah, that right. understand audience well. And so actually talking to them gave us a really good sense of, oh, actually, this is what... Audiences are looking for this. Is what audience? This is how you can engage with them. So it was not just the tactical help. It was a lot of other stuff in there as well.
0: And I'm glad that you that you bring that up because, as I mentioned earlier, you know we did have a two part episode on film festivals, mm. as seen through the lens of 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 Lyndon Stone, the the director of the Melbourne Documentary Film Festival. Yeah. And a lot of what he did is is he provided that insight that I think a lot of doc filmmakers don't necessarily get. We just yeah read the film festival books we read the press materials we submit films blindly and just hearing from other maybe filmmakers how the process works but to hear from the director um of a of a documentary of a film festival was extremely helpful because of the insight which you just which you just talked about
2: oh yeah yeah and absolutely and look i mean we're all in a position now where you know and, and and unfortunately there's some film festivals that take advantage of it and they just want your 30 bucks off you without right, a box. You know, classic, right? Yeah, they, yeah. And, and, and so we've tried to really avoid that. We tried to really actually go, well, you know, cause I think there's a lot of filmmakers that'll go like, well, if I, if I don't get into Khan, then it's not worth it, is it? But then it's right. like, but your film was never a car. Like these aren't just, you know, just because they're prestigious festivals, they still got a flavour and a tone. Yeah, it that doesn't you,
1: mean that your film is right for that particular festival. You know, yeah, so yeah, that's important. You really it's do. Important. You have to. You do have to look at look at what they program and 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 submit wisely. Don't yeah. just like submit to four hundred film festivals and waste your money.
2: It's easier on the soul as well
0: if you're a bit oh, more targeted. <laughs> so central texas barbecue the short happens from there yep. you garner more festival nods and then some and then and then it has taken notice in such a way that it's been noticed by um by boards in australia who want to perhaps fund the bigger piece barbecue at what point did you decide that you wanted to do the bigger piece at what point did you decide i want you know we want to do a feature film called barbecue
2: It was, it was, you know, it was all a bit of a rush, really. Like we were basically, one thing that happened was we teamed up with a producer, Dan Joyce, um, who I actually went to university with like 10 years earlier. We're both from Adelaide. He'd been really getting up a lot of projects on like broadcast and stuff like that. And, you know. Um, we'd sort of been coming at it from the festival angle and all that. And so we sort of came together and, um, you know, he had a lot of good relationships and understanding of that, I guess, that, 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 um, film funding side of it, these boards. And, and, you know, you really just, you think of, um, uh, uh, the film funding body is almost like a sort of mini studio style system, in the sense that there's a couple of big organisations that you pitch your projects to, mm. and so you know it came straight. It was, it was literally
1: it was literally at Sydney Film Festival. So we we just screened Central Texas Barbecue, uh, and we had an, an informal chat with um, one of the uh, uh, documentary programmers from Screen Australia. Um, with Dan with Dan Joyce our producer and right. she basically said I really really want you to submit for this for this grant yeah. you know get get your yeah, get you get get yourself together and, and put it an application and and that's what we did and I yeah. think a couple of months later we we'd put forward you know the 20 page pitch and a, a full A to Z budget and yeah all the other paperwork we had to do and, and from there um, we got shortlisted and had to do a bunch more paperwork <laughs> um, and then a couple of months later we got got the word that, that we'd been selected.
2: but in terms of in terms of looking at what comes out of you know you mentioned the festival process it means I guess what it meant for them ticking their boxes is we've already we've already proven we can make a couple of films. We've already proven that they can find audiences in film festivals, and you know, and I guess, and and you know, it's even as simple as like they got to see it on, you know, when we when we played Central Texas Barbecue, we well premiered that one at Sydney as well, and the people that eventually deciding whether they want to support us, they're up, they're, they're watching it on a big screen with an audience as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is the big thing: is yeah. that you know, film festivals are are, are the world's best focus groups um, for for anyone that wants to know if your film can reach an audience wow, so right. you know So all of these layers came in as well so you know combine that with then you know and then dan had the track record with doing sort of more broad doing stuff sort of within their way of doing it it's, it's sort of you know so it meant that when by the time they asked us to quarter submit quarter something quarter. um i think they they were you know they had a good they, they got aware of the work in a good way you know in the best way possible it means community
0: is what barbecue means and there's a community of us that are still keeping it alive
1: I think I I I That's why it is.
2: That's a barbecue. It brings people together.
1: Barbecue is about barbecue culture around the world, but it's not about the food. It's about the way putting meat on fire brings people, brings communities together. Um, so we wanted to explore it from a cultural perspective as like an act that humans do to, to be together rather than a cooking show.
0: And yet it ends up like so many of the, uh, so many documentaries, it ends up being about something
2: so much more than that.
0: It's about community, is it not? It's about people coming together. It's about family, it's about friendship.
2: Yeah, and I think that you know all of those themes sort of came out of the process of making. You know, you saw it, because it was a film that we shot in twelve countries. Mm. You know, you, you obviously have to, I guess, as a as a storyteller, sort of try and guess where the story might go. But we we tried really hard to not sort of ram a narrative down the subject throat, you know, like just sort of like hear what they, because we we're going into places that we did not know a huge amount about. right? And so we just wanted to, you know, we were more like just listening to what they say and let them identify the things that are important in their world. So in a way this sort of survey of the world gave us a chance to sort of see, well, what is on people's minds and what mm. are these commonalities and the, the things that you described, like home community, um, being a part of a of a global world, sort of, you know, wanting to come together, being proud of your your heritage, like sort of these elements, I think. We sort of hoped, in a way, you know. We sort of we sort of joked that like this was sort of like a, a, a hypothesis that we went in, in hope of, you know. And, and if and if it didn't prove, you know, if it, if the if the world is a terrible place and and no one wants to get along, then we would have gone down gone with that. But you know, the yeah. fact that there was there was this sort of affirming um, look at the world coming out of you know what at the end of the day is just regular people just chatting over a barbecue. That that yeah, that that was those sort of, I guess, those themes that came out of that came at the end of a long journey. And you told these stories in countries like South Africa,
0: Japan, Armenia, Uruguay, Australia, uh, Texas. And, and mm-hmm. yes, Texas is its own country. Let's let's be honest here. Yeah, well, if you just
2: ask anyone from Texas. I'll explain that. to you.
0: Yeah, right. Exactly. How did you guys decide um, what countries that you would be filming in? How did you how did you narrow that down?
1: Yeah, well, we wanted it to be as geographically broad as possible, but we also had ideas about how certain countries would link together thematically. So um, we touch on, I think, nearly every continent, every continent except Antarctica. Yeah, I I think that's right. Right, right. But, you know... um, things like contrasting um, the refugee camps, the Tari refugee camp on the border of Syria and Jordan yeah, contrasting brilliant. the story there of people who have no home with Armenia, a, a country where similarly over over generations a lot of Armenians have been forced to leave their homes. So right. themes like home, um, themes like, uh, I mean for us we had to include a, a, a Australia and you know we had to reflect places that were important to us as well as filmmakers so yes. um, Places like Australia, obviously. Um, Yeah.
2: Yeah, and we also, you know, um, we wanted to do some big countries that, you know, like obviously had to figure into the barbecue story. but then we wanted to look at small, smaller and maybe, you know, countries that people wouldn't necessarily be able to place on a map, ourselves included. So, you know, we went to um, we went to Uruguay instead, which is a small country as opposed to Argentina, which is a big country. And to this day I'm still getting uh, hate mail oh, about boy. that. Oh, boy, wow. The, uh, <laughs> the, uh,
1: not, not including Argentina has, uh, woof people are passionate. Yeah, like. I don't think, and, and I, I,
2: you know, we made our first short film there but I don't know if we're right. welcome back in that country. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that was also, you know, that, it was, you know about ev- changing expectations. Exactly, yeah.
1: Everyone was expecting this film to include Argentina yeah. and I feel like they get a, enough coverage in terms of <laughs> That's right, so that's right. Show, we wanted to show Uruguay, the, the underdog. And I, think, and
2: I think also that, you know, it was, you know, we were very, very fortunate in that, you know, when we – got the funding to do this film. We were, you know, we we was just so lucky to be able to sort of make it quite a personal story. You know, we're not in the the documentary. We're not it doesn't cut to us. We're not voiceovering it or anything like that. Right. It's people's story in their own words. But we, you know, part of the story of like which countries we chose, there's also just all these sort of random, um, serendipitous moments that brought us to countries like when we, you know, we didn't even know about barbecue in Armenia. And then we mm-hmm. saw this little um viral video about a guy talking about how Armenia's got the best barbecue. And it just sort of went, it was like a joke. It just came and became a, like a meme on Reddit. And then I found yeah. out that that guy lives in Australia, reached out to him, got oh, in touch wow. with his daughter. And then before you knew it, it, like we were staying with his child childhood friend in Armenia who couldn't speak a word of English. So you kind of take those opportunities as they come up as well. So we just sort of booked a ticket and went. So, you know, we got it, a lot of it's you know, as much as it's part of some grand conspiracy, which country we chose, there was also just this sort of, random movement that that applied
0: yeah. to it two of my favorite uh, locations that that you did and the, the stories where you shot were um, I loved early on the Japan segment another another location that I that I really dug and probably because it spoke to my sort of filmic sensibilities if you will was was Mongolia yeah
2: yeah absolutely I had
0: never heard of this uh is, is it boodog or Bodog how yeah, do you pre- yeah that's right. cooking yeah. from inside out why don't you can you describe that to us real quick because that blew oh, my yeah. mind.
1: Oh yeah. So this one, yeah, this is for for most people wouldn't have heard of this. So basically what you do, you skin the animal, but it's very important to keep the skin in one piece without any holes in it. Then you cut up the meat, leave it on the bone, cut it into chunks and then the meat is placed back inside the animal's skin with boiling hot rocks. So the rocks have been heated over a fire. So they're like really, really, really hot. They get put back into the animal's skin with the meat, with some spices, and basically those hot rocks are cooking the animal by steam from the inside out. You then have to stitch up the the, the neck hole, <laughs> and the whole animal blows up like a balloon, yes. cooking with the steam. And then you have to blowtorch the fur off the outside, so you're effectively cooking it from the inside and the outside yes. at the same time.
0: <laughs> it's 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 incredible. Did you uh did you guys partake in the meat from the from the voodoo?
1: Of course we did. We ate everything. Yes, of course. Um, I'm glad we did it. Um, Don't necessarily need to do it again. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Um, My wife is vegetarian. How, Mm -hmm. How and why should she be interested in a documentary film like Barbecue?
2: Yeah, I think it's you know it's interesting, and you know we got to bounce it off a couple of a couple of people that worked in post production on the film were vegetarians. They got um, uh, one poor poor assistant editor who had to cut about a hundred hours of this footage. You know, <laughs> start That's so cruel but, um, you, guys. you know, I think it's I think it's you know we wanted this documentary to be a reflection of the world and the, the world we live in, and the right. reality is is that this you know we do have this this celebratory bringing together of people over meat. And I think whether you, whether you on a personal level choose to partake in it or not, um, there's, you know, I, I, I definitely enjoy watching documentaries about people that I, that don't do things the same that I do. Yeah, you bet. Um, and I, you know, and I think, I think there's hopefully enough of an interesting, um, things discussed about how people come together and choose to come together over this—that it, it maybe it moves a bit beyond personal choices, like you know—but um, you know, it's it, it's a hard question to answer, I think. Yeah, and yeah. I, I think
1: uh, like. Choosing whether or not you eat meat is a very first world issue um, or privilege, I should say. Sure, is
0: right. That's right. So
1: uh, it's great that we can all live in a world where we can choose whether or not we eat meat. That's fine. But I think a lot of the cultures that we show in the film don't have the luxury of that choice. Right. Um, And I don't think that they should be looked down upon for making for for that. I guess. Um, Yeah.
0: This film is shot. It's shot beautifully. Oh, thank c- you. Carefully, uh, yeah. dare I say, delicately, which is in which is in stark contrast of say, you know, this idea of people around a grill barbecuing and just yeah getting into cuts of meat, right? <laughs> uh, yeah. Matthew, I uh, were you the cinematographer on this as well? Yes, I was. Yeah, yes. I, I thought so. Tell tell us a, a little bit about uh, your process, or maybe as well as maybe your inspirations for how you like to film this
2: kind of uh, this kind of work. Yeah, it was um. The sort of the attitude we took is, is you know, um, I think the last seven or eight years of me shooting stuff has been probably the arc a lot of us have gone through if we've shot on DSLRs, which is like, I, I started before DSLRs came out, so I was desperately trying to chase shallow depth of field and like all yeah. that <laughs> right. stuff of like that. <laughs> then, then I like overdosed on it around 2009, 2010. Oh, I'm pretty sure most of us did. Oh, everyone did. You know, 50 (laughs) mils set to minimums and just floating in on it, all that shit. Like, and, um, and then we, and then we, I, and then, you know, I think, I, I don't know, but for maybe other documentary filmmakers, feel a similar thing is like if you started before the dslr age yeah you were chasing it then you had an excess of it and then you know now we're in a stage where we can do anything right so you know like this is a documentary with a look you know this sort of 35 mil look that we couldn't have done 15 years ago unless we had about 10 million dollars of film to work with yes so now um we can do anything we want and that that's the truly liberating thing. When I think when I think I got over the um excesses of DSLR style photography and actually sat down and go, like, well what how do I actually want to portray this story? And um for me it was all about yeah, avoiding some of those sort of um easy traps of um food porn kind mm-hmm. of photography. Because, because totally. Like Rosie said earlier, this isn't a- about food this is the film about people and for me it's always been about the interview that's always come out of um, shooting um, that portrait mode project I told you about where it was all about like how do we frame you know how do we get away from that like um, talking head, right side looking to left side, kind of off-camera journalism kind of look. We
1: had a rule that nobody would be sitting in front of a bookcase. Yeah, we sort of. So we
2: sort of had this like rule oh, of God. like you know, no, <laughs> no PhDs in front of bookcases, none of that sort of stuff. No, we we sort of have a rule of like documentary tropes that personally we try to avoid. Like it works for certain stories, but has never worked for us. So we're like, no walking and talking and describe. No walking and talking and describing the things around you. Yeah. No sitting yeah, in yeah, front yeah. of a bookcase. So we sort of tried to strike some of that stuff out but mainly what it was is i see this process of now that we've got these tools of cinematography is just like uh, I, I i try to borrow more from non-documentary work mm. and so the you know the whole idea about film is about elevating um everyday situations into the cinematic. And so I think documentary has got this great opportunity to do that. Now that's very different to like an ob-doc observational style, truly verite, where realism is conveyed through the grittiness of the photography. For me, it's all about about, – yeah, sort of putting people up on a pedestal and making this because ev- the whole point of the film is that barbecues so every day in people's lives that they've never given it a second thought yeah. so by putting it onto this pedestal and giving it this sort of uh, cinematic tone that that I, I I think sort of you know started ele- elevating it into you know into a in a more interesting space I think
0: that's great and we actually recently ran an episode uh, where sort of my segment for the show was about this idea of how to make one's documentary a bit more cinematic and sometimes mm-hmm. that, that, that term drives me crazy but, yeah. but we all know what 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 we, what we mean when we say this <laughs> say cinematic
2: yeah, yeah and i I think it's more—it's more than just production value, you know. It's more than just chucking it on a crane or like doing stuff like that. For me, it was, um, yeah, you know, like it's funny that most of my film inspirations aren't from documentary; they're from like yeah. '60s and '70s classic um, cinema and European cinema, oh and yeah, Asian cinema and stuff like that. So you know, like you'd be you'd be do, you'd be strangely doing a shot in in um, <laughs> in uh, Sweden, and it would be like that's a very Fellini shot. Do more, you know, like <laughs> sort of, you know, you're sort of vibing it that way. <laughs> I think at the, you know, recently it's been like, you've been stuck between either being super verite or being imitative of grand cinema. That's right. I think, whole new models will come out of it where people will actually do all sorts of interesting things now that they have all the tools. But, it, mm. you know, we're, it we're very new. It's all very new. It doesn't
1: have to be complicated either. We didn't, yeah, we, didn't right. use single, we didn't use a single light on the entire yeah. shoot. We brilliant, didn't use any brilliant. lights. We had a camera and a tripod. That's it. That's it,
2: camera and a tripod. <laughs> yeah, so we didn't have it's any. Not,
1: it's not like, um you know, we were using uh, cranes or drones yeah. or anything like that. We It was incredibly simple what and, we did.
2: And that came out of a need to, like, because we knew it was going to be just the two of us. We didn't even have anyone um, assisting us. We were shooting it in 4K, which made it a little bit more difficult. And basically we just didn't want, I guess, to we just didn't want the the, the technology to, mm. you know, get in the way of a story. So we yeah. sort of we sort of gave ourselves some sort of limits on on the equipment we were gonna take out. There. Yeah. As we wrap this
0: conversation up, tell us how we can see barbecue. There's more distribution happening, is there not?
1: Yeah, well, it's it's out on Netflix worldwide as of last week.
0: Exactly, so exciting, so exciting.
1: <laughs> thank you. Yeah. So yeah, it just came out last Tuesday, um, which is great, and that's across all all like Netflix all around Platforms, the world. So right? Um, yeah.
2: <laughs> and then, and then, if you don't have Netflix, all the usual um, stops like iTunes, Google Play, Vimeos, all of them. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But uh, yeah, thank we, you. So, so, yeah. and that's the great. Just quickly, that's a yes. great thing. Is you know, as as you know when we made this film it was a global film but we never we never quite knew how we were going to reach a uh we wanted to send it out to a global audience obviously as yeah, well and yeah. so you know um just getting it onto netflix is just you know for it to be able to drop in a day to a hundred million subscribers in i don't know hundred and something countries is uh, pretty, pretty exciting, exciting. wow uh, i'm so glad that we had this
0: conversation it's been such a pleasure to have met you guys thank you so much for being on the show and uh let's have you on again yeah thank you guys oh,
1: thank absolutely. you so Anytime. much for having us it was fun
0: Hey, can I ask a quick favor? If you found this podcast helpful in living your doc life or making your doc film, will you help us share it with more people by giving us a stellar review on whichever platform you use to listen to this podcast? We'd really appreciate it. And you'll be helping the doc filmmaking community find us. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode.